Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to episode seven of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're really excited to present this month's theme, IMS Professional Programs. That's right, IMS is not only known for its thesis-based degrees, it also has its three professional master's programs, two of which we'll explore this month. In this episode, we feature the newest of the three, the Translational Research Program in Health Science, or TRP. To learn more about the program, we invited its ambassador, Mr. Richard Foti. In addition to being the program's network and community coordinator, Rich is a fifth-year PhD student studying clinical epidemiology at the IMS. Having Rich on the show is great. Well-spoken and confident, Rich tells us how 10 days in Sicily changed his perspective on what he wanted to do in science. We also hear from Director Dr. Joseph Fernbach, who touches upon the challenges in industry, academia, and healthcare the TRP is trying to address, and what students hope to gain from the program. All right, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a comment on our episode page or let us know what you think on social media. Let's get into the conversation. So how did you end up here at the IMS? So I did my master's degree at Dalalana at the School of Public Health. And I needed to get out of school at that point. If I had applied to do my PhD at that point and they, have, they would have accepted me, I would have told them something was wrong, okay, because I needed to get out of school. I didn't have any context to the stuff that I was learning. So I went to work at SickKids as an epidemiologist for about five years, and I was working in environmental epi at the time with Dr. Sharon Dell in respirology. And after about five years, like it w Sharon was a fantastic boss. She was a wonderful, wonderful boss. Uh, in fact, I'm still working with her. But I needed to do more than I was doing. I wanted to have the ability to answer the questions that I had and all that. And in order to do that, you need funding. And in order to get funding, you need to have a PhD or an MD or something. But I was going down the PhD route. So, uh, so I went back to school to do my PhD. IMS was great because it uh, had less structure than the other PhD programs out there. And less structure is good for me. I like the ability the freedom to sort of examine the things that I want to, that I want to, um, the questions that I want to ask. That being said, in that freedom, I always add my own structure, but at least it's my structure and it's not someone telling me what to do. So that's, that's why I ended up at uh, IMS doing my PhD. And uh, why was it important for you to get involved outside of research? Originally, it was just because I wanted a more collegiate experience. PhDs sort of have a danger of locking themselves up in their lab or in their office in my case and just basically doing the same thing that we'd been doing for years but now it's being applied to a degree and I make less money because I want a student stipend. Um, <laughs> so I mean, ultimately PhDs don't actually have to see anybody else. There's very few courses that they have to take uh, and I didn't want that. I wanted to, to be able to, to get in touch with the other students and really feel like I was back at school. So I started volunteering with the uh, Student Association, the uh, IMSSA. So first year I was a member at large, I just kind of sat in and got involved. And in the second year I decided, well, I want to do more than that. So I ran for president and uh, I was president for that second year. And that opened a lot of doors because uh, I got to know the directors and the sort of the hierarchy and uh, that helped subsequently with my work with the translational research program and all of that. What got you interested in translational research as a discipline? So that year that I was president, I remember there were these two students. There's the, we have the, um, the Ori Rodstein lecture series every year. And every year, 
there were these two students, they were different students every year, who came to present their experience at this thing called Eureka. It was the Eureka um, uh, Certificate Program in Translational Research. And I didn't know what the heck it was, but I knew it was in Sicily, and the pictures were amazing. So anyways, the year, the year after I was president, um, the Eureka thing came up again, and I wasn't going to apply, but Dr. Alan Kaplan, who was the director of IMS at the time, said, Rich, you need to apply to this. You should go. This is right up your alley. And I said, okay. So I applied. And it's a competitive program, but I got selected, and, and, and they sent me. So great, I'm off, I'm, off, I'm off to Sicily. And it was. It was absolutely spectacular. But I got in the room the first day, and I really didn't know what I was in for. I kind of had an idea of what translational research was, but I wasn't really sure. And I got there, and you know, the people that run the program there are pretty major scientists internationally. And they stood up in front of us. There were 30 of us international, like international students in this room. It was a beautiful space. Uh, and the first thing they said is, the system is broken. And I thought, oh, amen. Okay, this whole concept of just uh, applying for funding so that you can do a study, so that you can publish a paper, so that you can put that on your CV and get more funding to do another study, to write another paper. And that cycle just doesn't make any sense because it doesn't often lead to a really substantial change in healthcare. It can, okay? And it's not to dismiss um, uh, discovery science by any means. We need discovery science to find those solutions. We absolutely do. But I'm not a discovery scientist. I'm an applied scientist. I'm not a theoretical person, okay? I want to use theory to do something with it. Um, so we spent 10 days in Sicily at this, uh, at the certificate program, and it was amazing. It completely changed my perspective on what I wanted to do with science. And so when I got back, I changed my thesis. It was like, it, it, it sounds ridiculous, but the 10 days that I was there gave me a new perspective. And I didn't completely change it. I just added a couple of pieces that would make it more translational. And at that time, the IMS had just started planning their translational research program. So yeah, the translational research program I think had been in the works um, for a couple of years. Um, it was the first, when I got back, it was the first I'd really started hearing about it because I think they sent me specifically so that I could add my perspective to the planning and the organization of it. Um, and so in the next year I got a little more involved and that sort of snowballed to you know, where we are now. And could you tell us a little bit more about that program? Yeah, yeah. The program is a professional master's degree. Um, it's our first year in operation right now. There's 17 students. Um, and the idea behind it is to try and get an interdisciplinary group of people around a table. So ultimately and ideally, we don't want 17 scientists sitting around a table all agreeing on the same thing. That's not the point. This is new to science. It's not new to other disciplines, okay? So if you think about business, for example, if you're going to come up with a new product, the first thing you're going to do is find out whether there's even a need for that product, okay? So you're either going to find a need for it or you're going to create a need for it, <laughs> one of the two, okay? <laughs> so, but you have to identify that there's a need. And then you need to figure out whether there's anybody else in the marketplace who's actually trying to address that already. Like, do you have competition? Who are they? What are the products like? Are there holes in there? Like, are there weaknesses that you, know, you can capitalize on? And then you're going to decide, yeah, I'm going to create something similar or something completely different, and I'm going to fill in all those gaps. Okay? And then you're going to figure out how to do it. The, the translational research is very much the same thing. We're going to identify a patient need. We're going to figure out if there's any other solutions out there already. If there are, now this can be a therapy. It doesn't need to be a device, right? 
we're going to figure out, is there anything else out there like that already? And if there are any weaknesses in, in those therapies or in those products, and then we're going to try and find a solution that will fill in those gaps. Um, so that's kind of the point. But in order to do that, you need sort of an arsenal of tools. It's not just the science that we've been trained in. There's a lot of other things that are taken into consideration, things like intellectual property. Okay, now IP, you might think, okay, well, you know, I don't want to make money. You know, it's, it's all about the children, you know, for me, in my case, I work at SickKids, right? And that's cool. Like, it can totally be that. You can be as altruistic as you want. But the reality is, if you're trying to develop a new treatment, like a new drug, for example, you're not going to find gr funding to create a new drug. We're talking about, like, 16 years of research and billions of dollars, okay? So you're going to have to partner with somebody. In that particular case, it'll probably end up being a pharma company. But in order for a pharma company to actually want to do this, they're going to have to get something out of it. So they're going to need to make money. Okay? And if you go out, very simply, if you find a discovery and you go and you present it in an international conference, it's now open source. There is no IP on it anymore. So that's what we're used to doing. right? We're used to finding a discovery and then, um, and then going and presenting it. But if you wanted to make the drug, there's no IP anymore. No pharma company in their right mind is going to devote billions of dollars into R&D to develop something that you know, the next company can just copy and throw up on the shelves. So that's something really important that we need to take into consideration. Um, funding is becoming increasingly difficult to get in science, right? The governments now, they want us to find matched funding and things like that too. So we got to go out and sell ourselves as scientists. We're not trained to do that. We're scientists, right? We're trained to be in the lab and actually do the work that we're doing. So now not only are we spending you know, more than half of our time actually applying for grants, now we've got to spend a whole other chunk of our time trying to find uh, partners who are going to match the government funding in order to actually do the work that we're doing. It's just becoming increasingly difficult. So those are some of the tools that you know, we, we train our students with. You know, they also they need to learn to collaborate. So they're not going to be experts in, in, in law. They're not going to be experts in ethics. They're not going to be experts in marketing. Right? If you're designing an application, they're not going to be coding experts. So they need to learn to work with all of these people. All of these people talk in different languages. So you need to know where to find them. You need to know how to talk to them. You need to know how to develop a team in order to actually successfully create that product or that therapy that's going to be a solution to the need that you originally identified. Hi, my name is Alex. And I'm Melissa. And this is the Ask a Student segment. So this episode's Ask a Student is a little bit different than previous installments because not only will we be talking to two students today, we'll also be featuring an innovative project that they're currently working on to help uh, U of T students gain timely access to mental health services. So now we're going to turn it over to our lovely guests who are going to introduce themselves. Hi, this is Lily. Hi, I'm Tiffany. And we're both second year master's students in the Translational Research Program at the Institute of Medical Science at U of T. We also have two other teammates, Cheryl and Gurpreet, who unfortunately can make it here today. So why don't we talk a little bit about the TRP program? So the Translational Research Program is sort of the first of its kind in Canada, from what I understand and you guys are part of the first cohort of students who are going to graduate from the program, which is pretty exciting. Do you guys want to talk about your experience in the program so far? Yeah, so I came into this uh, translational research program at 2015 when it's the year that it started. And my experience in the program so far has, um, it's a course-based master's, by the way. It's mm -hmm. two years course-based master with, with a research component in the second year. So in my first year, um, I 
classmates and I were in the courses to learn more about the context around translational research and through the case studies, learn about specific examples of the researchers who have done translational research. And in our second year, um, which is a year that we're in, now we're really focusing on capstone project, which is a name of the project that allows students, that gives students opportunity to really conduct their own research in this, con uh, in this context of translational research. How have you guys liked the program so far? So my experience in this program has been very interesting, especially coming from a mostly wet lab background, you know, looking for biomarkers in an animal model. I think it often became hard to see where my research could really be applied to a patient. And so I think what excited me the most about this program was you had to be really open-minded and change the way you approached research, finding out what stakeholders wanted, making sure that it was applicable to their setting and it was something that they would ever actually consider using. And as a first cohort, the great thing is that there's faculty members, the professors were super supportive and IMS, um, the dean of IMS, Dr. Mingyao Liu, actually came to two of our classes to really sit and wow. engage in discussion. So I thought that was, that was really nice, very supportive of him to come to our classes. But also being a first cohort, there were a lot of <laughs> challenges and kinks. kinks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, at the organizational level, that has to be sorted out. And now it's fixed and improved for a second cohort. It's very, very nice to see. I think a lot of the things that we found very challenging in our first cohort, let's say the order of the content wasn't um, presented very well or it wasn't very useful. So this year they've they've listened to us and they really made those changes. And there was a feedback mechanism to that. They exactly. Like yes, the they were and... really open to our feedback. And I think that's one of the things I appreciate the most about our program faculty and, and Joseph. It's a lot of faculty-student engagement, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Great. Yeah. So let's let's talk a bit about your capstone project, which um, we understand is, is one of the bigger, or one of maybe the biggest parts of your whole education as part of the TRP. So your project is called Timely, which is a very apt name for your endeavor. So can you just tell us a little bit about the project and also why you decided to pursue this specific avenue of um, research and, and sort of mental health-focused uh, yeah. Sure. So I think Timely really came about when we all were first thinking about what we should work on our capstone project back in the beginning of winter. I think we all sat down and we were wondering what, what meant a lot to us and what our passions were. And so for a lot of us, especially myself, I think mental health was something that became really important to me, um, reflecting on my experience um, with the challenges of adapting to university life. And so another one of our group members was also interested in technology. So we were wondering how we could combine those two into a capstone project. Mm -hmm. And at first, our idea was to create a mobile app. But after some discussions with our program director about our <laughs> proposal, <laughs> the feasibility, um, and Thinking back on what we learned, we realized we couldn't just suggest this mobile app that we thought was a fantastic idea that all students would just love and would solve their <laughs> mental health problems. We would actually have to do some more research and do some of the design thinking that we had learned and see if that's what people wanted. And if we're thinking of having this used in a clinic, would, would they use it? 
After we did our overhaul and our proposal, uh, we went out and we did some preliminary interviews with some students and psychiatrists. So would you say focusing first on developing your question and the need aspect is something that you're taught in the TRP, or is it something that you realized yourself? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest turning points that we had in the uh, along our project, that we had a talk with our um, program director, Joseph uh, Dr. Joseph Rambach, and it was it was then that he really asked us to focus on the needs assessment, um, talking to the mm-hmm. students or our target population on on what they want and what they need, instead of thinking about the solutions first, which was taught in the program, which was taught in the course. But I think it's um, they're teaching that much earlier this year to the mm-hmm. students prior to thinking about the capstone project. So they they do have this framework in mind that mm-hmm. don't think about the solutions first, but talk to talk to the target stakeholders and target population first to really figure out the need that they, that they have. So timely is this project or a bigger picture idea that there's a problem, students can't get access to these mental health services when they need them, and you guys are trying to address that. Um, what was the feedback that you got from the students that you, that you interviewed? So they're all U of T students. Um, they're both graduate students and undergraduate students. What were they, what was the repeated, what was coming up over and over again right. in these uh, focus groups and interviews? I think the key thing that we found was that the average wait time for students was for mental health services was four to eight weeks. Wow. Um, and often, oh my God. yeah, like, it's yeah, a really too. long time, especially because most of these students are coming for episodic issues. So that means that these issues um, they're having are really situated around stress about midterms. And, you know, if you have to wait four to eight weeks, I mean, by that time, your stress has already that stressor has already passed, Mm -hmm. but you're still left with that mental distress Mm -hmm. um, for such a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And so having that mental health support later on isn't as helpful. Another thing we found from students was that there often wasn't very good follow-up. So if they're waiting this long, they don't know what's happening in that wait time. They don't even know what to expect. Mm-hmm. Um, like if it's an acute issue, there were they directed elsewhere maybe? Or was there anything well, that... Well, if it was extremely serious or um, what they considered extremely serious, they would definitely, I think, take the appropriate measures and, and see you right away. Um, maybe if you're exhibiting signs of self-harm, um, but I think for the majority of cases, you have to sit in that queue. We found out that one example of excellent mentor, mental care is for those at the top of the triage, for those of, of requiring urgent care for reasons that could be, for example, for uh, suicide, which really ranks in the triage process a student very top at the priority. And these, when um, through the interviews, we learned that the students at the top of the priority not only get a quick access to the care, but also excellent coordination of care. For example, health and wellness would collaborate really well with the CAMH or the hospitals in the community, as well as um, what we call allied healthcare workers, for example, counselors and uh, counselors and social workers. They would all um, be coordinated together in a care for this for this uh, individual. And I think that uh, one thing really um 
quick access to care is also um, we've we learned that it's one thing that's necessary but also perhaps it's really this collaboration and really well-directed care that involves a lot of the other resources that could really help mental health students so yeah maybe if we put in all these mental health cases to doctors maybe that might increase a more workload so the question could be resources Mm -hmm. but we also feel that perhaps if we allow more more of the available resources to students in a coordinated way maybe Mm -hmm. that can um, not only quicken the access for the mental health students Mm -hmm. but also really um with the other resources that we have maybe make it more coordinated and lessen the amount of, yeah efficiency and lessen the amount of work yeah that's so um and not make it it's solely for MDs responsible mm-hmm. for mental health very care. true mm-hmm. yeah yeah sort of striving for that yeah teamwork mm-hmm. and sort of glo- like a global taking care of the person not globally mm-hmm. but uh, holistically yeah. that's the word. <laughs> if MDs could maybe um, better utilize the other uh, mental health professionals like social workers rather than mm-hmm. just psychiatrists and psychologists. Absolutely. I think we could really reduce some of that burden and it may not impact the wait times too much for mm-hmm. the typical health and wellness services. Absolutely. Perfect. So if you have any questions for the Timely team, you can contact us at trpmentalhealth at gmail.com. We are also recruiting students for our capstone project. So if you have used or are currently using any of the mental health services at the Health and Wellness Center at the University of Toronto St. George campus, please contact us at, once again, trpmentalhealth at gmail.com. Thank you so much, ladies. I think that's the end of our Ask a Student segment, and we're returning to the podcast. So how is this program structured? Do they go to workshops, tutorials, there's guest speakers from these different fields? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So there's, there's a couple of core courses that we have. Okay, because this whole concept of reframing the thinking, that's really important. And the students that we accept into the program, they're the ones that we figure, okay, they're primed for this, they're ready. They're kind of at the point where I was, where you know, I, I didn't want to just keep writing papers and losing them to the abyss of PubMed. I wanted to do something more with it. But they don't know what that is yet, and they're still used to thinking in the same way. The other thing we have to teach them is just the process of translation. Now, depending on what it is that you're trying to, what problem you're trying to solve, it's going to be different. Okay, but there's some generalities that we can follow. So they need to kind of learn that kind of stuff. They need to learn networking. They need to learn communication. They need to learn how to operate in a team, how to lead a team, how to design a project. Okay, that's very different than what we're used to doing in the lab. Okay, so there's a couple of core courses that go over that. Um, there's a lot of modules. So in the same way that IMS has modules, the TRP have modules. So we have IP modules, for example, where we get we have an IP lawyer who comes in to teach intellectual property and how to deal with it. What is it? What do I have to apply for? What is a patent? What is a copyright? Like there's all these things that are different. So between the core courses and the modules, and then all the co-curricular stuff that we do, you know, we'll bring in people from uh, venture capitalists, for example, or, uh, you know, lawyers or things, or people that come in to talk about uh, their area in translation and and how that works. We bring in a lot of entrepreneurs, people that have done this before. You know, up till now, it's sort of been by the seat of your pants. So these people that that come in and they they talk to the students, they say, you know, uh, ultimately they end up saying, I wish there was a program like this before I got started, because we had to learn on the fly and we made a lot of mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes, and that's part of the design thinking process is to understand how to get around those mistakes. 
Hi everyone, this is Melissa and Alex, and on today's Mentors Corner segment, we are very excited to have someone who is a mentor to many students, Dr. Joseph Fehrenbach. Uh, he is the director of the Translational Research Program at the University of Toronto, which is a brand new program here. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing today, My Dr. pleasure. I, I, great. Wonderful. You said that a lot of other programs call themselves translational research, but it's thesis-based and they're just trying to make their thesis fit from bench to bedside, but maybe it really doesn't. And so this is more course-based from what we understand. So you could, do you want to talk about the structure? Much of the program is about facilitating students and their individual learning experience. And I, that sort of sounds weird in, the, in a program that's supposed to be focused on, on groups and collaboration, but the students bring to the program their individual needs. Mm -hmm. and the way that the, the people that get in, in in an ideal situation, we're still learning, is that the people that do get into the program bring into it somewhat of an understanding or an appreciation of where they want to be, a drive, a vision. It's springboard. Now, that said, we've had some really, really amazing recent graduates that started out right from undergraduate mm -hmm. that have done some amazing things because they found that the, the program for the first time in their lives sort of opened things up and they could make their own choices and didn't have to follow. And then there are others that were sort of inundated. Why aren't you giving me more direction? You know, I need <laughs> instructions for this. Uh, so the right balance is going to be very interesting over the years to perfect, if it's possible to perfect it. Right. But the idea, the genesis of the program was very much from this sort of iterative thinking, we have a problem, how do we solve it? Mm -hmm. and the reason I spend some time talking about that is because that's Part of what makes it very different than every other translational research program out there that calls itself translational research. Mm -hmm. Because most of them, when I was doing the, the research, there, there were dozens at the time, basically just put translational research onto a master's program. And so you did your work at the bench and then you tried to commercialize it or move it in your thesis and so it wasn't about actually learning skills that were any different. It was just the same with a different title. I think partly because this started out as a kind of hodgepodge of collaborative insights and things, uh, the program became very different. And, and it's very hard in some ways to articulate that in a very brief quick to yeah. the point. No, that's okay. <laughs> that was a great explanation. <laughs> so in the first year, students take three core courses for the first eight months, three full year courses, essentially. One is the foundations. And so that's the course in which we start talking about what is translation. And what we've done this year in, in response to some of the student feedback, but also into like thinking about tweaking, we've actually we actually haven't talked about translation the whole first semester. We've actually talked about tools of translation. And so students are very much lost in a sense right now because they don't have this big picture yet, but they've learned about things like um, intellectual property. They've learned things about uh, 
how to sort of commercialization or thinking about the big picture of getting money, funding. They're, the next class is on endpoints and outcomes and what, is that, what do those mean even? And how are they it, uh, related to what you might be doing? Mm -hmm. uh, whether very beginning basic discovery of a molecule to actually putting a drug on the shelf. And then next semester, the plan is to start putting it all together. So it's a year-long course. And during that course, we have discussants coming in from all walks of life. We have, it's, it's everyone, so next week, Dr. Jaffray is coming in, who's the vice president of UHN Research and Innovation, and three other uh, research scientists. Uh, we've had sort of the assistant vice president of research innovation for U of T come in, Derek Newton. Um, and so the people that the, the students are meeting are potential people that can, they can network with and reach out to. And um, so that's the first class. The second class is a prep class. So essentially it is how do you start thinking about translating? And what we've developed here in, in over the last year or so is actually a framework how to think about innovating. And it's built on existing frameworks, so it's not like super original. I'm not <laughs> claiming that it, it, I mean, in some ways it's reassuring, I think, to some of the students to know that it wasn't just uh, Something you pulled out of. <laughs> well, I mean, we did make it out, but like it's it's uh, <laughs> it's based on yes. others. Um, so design thinking, for example, lots of people talk about it. Lots of people have different interpretations of it. As you'll see, I probably have half a dozen books at least about it. But it doesn't actually work in health science very well. Um, and it, there are now pockets of people starting to use it, but. As um, someone told me uh, six months ago, you can't just give somebody a pill and if it doesn't kill them, decide, uh-oh, we'll give you a different pill next time. You can't iterate the way that agile, uh, sort of flexible, lean startups or, or design mm -hmm. thinkers are supposed to. So uh, our version is, is translational thinking, which also involves some of the same steps, but instead of empathy and sort of, you know, trying to figure out how to understand your, the user, it's, we talk more about discovering, discovering the needs, discovering the context, climate, then defining the pro problem, and then starting to research whether there's a valid reason to pursue that problem. Mm -hmm. And this is before doing any actual problem solving. Uh, one of the biggest things that has been a challenge, both for the people in the program, but also and the students in the program, is to stop thinking of solutions up front. <laughs> We're trained in our lives all the time. What's the answer? What's the answer? Here's the problem. What's the answer? But when you deal with ambiguous knowledge mobilization, there may not be an answer. And more importantly, you may not know the problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And if you don't understand the problem, it doesn't really matter, unless it's by accident, what you do to try and get a solution. There's no planned direction. So if you understand the problem and then you validate it and you understand the regulation and the landscape, next, 
you start brainstorming and start understanding, uh, you know, what's out there. Mm-hmm. So once you brainstorm, then prototype. Well, prototyping in many senses in engineering and design, usually people think 3D printers now. Well, actually, not entirely. Really, if you back off and, and look into how some people see prototyping, it's about making an idea concrete so that you can talk about it. A prototype can be a piece of paper where you've drawn a circle that will describe your pill or whatever. It becomes a talking point. Having something in your head and trying to get others to agree to it, very difficult. Right. Putting it on a piece of paper, no matter how rough, you have a point that they can then grab the, the, the stylus, the pencil, whatever, and interact with your idea. That is a conceptual prototype. So that's the next thing we sort of uh, will be working with our students. So that's all part of the capstone prep. And that leads into them proposing a project over mm-hmm. the next year that they work on. The other thing we do in the capstone prep course is we learned last year that having each of them think about their own problem is not effective. Because when you're tied to your problem, that's all you see. So for example, some of our students are running seven projects and they know where those projects need to end up for them to get, you know, get the next paper out. So when you ask them to brainstorm about the range of solutions to that project, they seem to always focus on what needs to be done to get that paper out. <laughs> it's, but if you distance them and try to say, look, you know, don't think about what you're actually doing right now because we're not focused on your problem, we're focused on the process of problem solving so that it becomes a skill you can then apply to future problems in your own thing. That becomes a, a better learning outcome. And the students are learning to apply understanding, discovery, the needs, defining the problems, mm-hmm. and then trying to figure out what is the landscape you know, within which to actually work. And so instead of focusing on their individual projects, this is it's a bit of an experiment this year, mm-hmm. but this so far it's been really interesting watching how they're learning to apply as they go. And still, the, the keep coming back to, we're not there to solve things. We're not there to guide them. We're not asking them for what problems they have because those come out naturally from the interactions and understanding. Right. Um, don't talk about solutions because then you have a bias and then you're pigeonholing and you may miss the real problem. Um, and so it's, it's that part of seems to be going really well and they seem to be enjoying it and then they'll present sort of their ideas for projects to the hospital where they can do and the hospital will be able to take some of those projects on and work on them if they so desire so it's a real life sort of it is experiential learning they are having concrete experiences that they are taking back they are reflecting and thinking about those experiences integrating them with their own knowledge and they are abstracting those experiences in order to understand sort of the bigger framework and then trying to experiment or propose potential ways to address what it is they they can't do and it becomes the circle of learning and experimentation where do you personally envision yourself after the completion of your graduate studies Mm. With all things considered. With all things considered, this, this is the, the idealist in me and what do I want to do? Um, I want to keep teaching. I wanna, I'm teaching in the program right now. 
uh, and I want to keep doing that. I think it's really important. It's not, it's not for, translational research is not for everybody. We're not saying that you need to train all scientists to do this by, by any means. Um, some people are better suited for it, and I'd, I'd really like to be able to, uh, to teach people and to, to reframe that thinking in the same way that it, it changed me. It, it made a really big difference. If I hadn't had gone to that workshop in Sicily, I probably wouldn't be a scientist right now. I would have gotten bored and left. Um, so I'd like to keep doing that, but I need to be able to practice what I preach. So I need to be able to do the translational research. And to do that, I need to be able to partner in industry. Okay, what I would love to do is have a company that solves some kind of healthcare problem that generates its own data. And then I can use that data to analyze and publish. I'm a population health scientist, I'm an epidemiologist. I can totally do that, right? So have the company, it makes its own income, it generates its own data, and I can use that income to do those studies and publish those papers. So it's kind of self-sustaining. Great. So I think that brings us to the end of our discussion. Cool. Uh, where can people find this program? Uh, you can go online at trp.utoronto.ca. Physically, we're in the McCall building, which is kind of hard to find. <laughs> but if you go to the website, you can get into contact with anybody you need from there. And Excellent. So that was Richard Foti. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much, guys. Raw Talk is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at rawtalkpodcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Okay, well, you know, I don't want to make money. You know, it's, it's all about the children.